Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. You can join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please do grab one. There's some under the seats nearby. And Mark 8 is on page 844 of those uh, Bibles there. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, this special gathering of your people, and we pray that not only in our gathering, but in every gospel church around the world gathering at different times uh, today, that you would be present and active by your Spirit to show us Christ, to reveal your glory in him, and transform us uh, for your glory and for our good. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been moving through the Gospel of Mark together each Sunday, and this morning we come to the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Through the first eight chapters of Mark, Mark the author has been showing us uh, the ministry of Jesus. We've heard Jesus announce that the kingdom of God has arrived in and through His ministry. We've heard Him teach with authority. We've seen Him cast out demons. We've seen him show compassion and heal people with a word or with a touch, and we've seen him calm storms. We've seen him feed thousands. We've seen him forgive sins. And all along, we get the sense that Jesus is progressively showing more and more of who he is, telling people to be quiet and not spread the news of him too much because he's progressively revealing himself on his terms, and people will be confused unless they come to him on his terms. And so, Mark tells this story of Jesus, and he's showing us that now this is the moment when everything gets clear, begins to get clearer. So, our text today answers three of the most important questions we can ask, not just about the gospel of Mark, but in general as humans. Who is Jesus really? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? So you may be a Christian asking these questions, and you're wondering from time to time, maybe right now, is the Jesus who I trust and follow, is it the real Jesus? Or is the Jesus that I think I'm following just a collection of things I've heard from people and things they've made up and from traditions and various things? Is it just filtered by centuries of people with various agendas trying to shape Jesus into their image? Is that the Jesus I've come to believe. Or you may be asking these questions as someone who's not yet a Christian. You're exploring who Jesus is. You're investigating Him, and you want to know if the Jesus you've heard about is the real Jesus. So, we want to know who the real Jesus is. What does it really mean to follow Him? And in this text in Mark 8, Jesus tells us plainly so that we can see clearly. So, here's the message of the text, and then we'll read it. In order to follow Jesus, we have to have answers to three questions. Who is he? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? So, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Let's read it together. This is God's Word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to him, brought to Jesus a blind man, and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people, 
but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them in conclusion, Therefore I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. So Mark is answering these three central questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? These three questions really connect to the three main themes that run through the entire gospel of Mark. I mentioned them at the beginning of the series. Jesus' identity, his mission, and discipleship. And now in our text, everything comes together to get clear on these three themes. Jesus is clarifying his identity, his mission, and discipleship. So here's what we'll do. We'll walk through these three themes of identity, mission, and discipleship with these three questions. Who is he? It's the identity question. Why did he come? What did he come to do? That's the mission question. And what does it mean to follow him? Which is discipleship. But first... I want to show you that this whole section is about getting clear about Jesus. So look at the first story of Jesus giving sight to the blind man. Verse 22 says, some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now we've seen almost this exact situation before uh, with a different disability, and we know what usually happens. Jesus touches the person, or he speaks the word, and they're healed. No problem for Jesus. But that's not what Jesus does this time. He lays his hands on him, and what happened? He asked the man if he sees anything. And the man says, kind of. <laughs> right? It kind of worked. I see people, but they're, they're like trees walking. So Jesus touched his eyes again. And this time he saw clearly. Well, what is going on here? What's with the two-stage healing? Well, it's not, I'm convinced, because it was too hard for Jesus to do in one shot, or he kind of fumbled this one. 
Uh, every Mark scholar I've read on this text comes to the same conclusion. Jesus did this on purpose as a symbol for his disciples. And what is the significance then of this two-stage healing? Well, look at the emphasis of the story. The emphasis is not just that this is a healing in general. It's on giving sight. And there's a theme of seeing that runs through the Gospel of Mark. And this is a theme not just about God giving, Jesus giving physical sight to people, but spiritual sight. It's about how God needs to heal our spiritual blindness so that we can see Jesus clearly. I mentioned this section is the turning point in the gospel of Mark. It's the hinge between two halves of the gospel, the first eight chapters and then the next eight. And so, as we look back at the first half of the gospel, here's what we see. We see people struggling to see Jesus clearly. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus began speaking in parables, these uh, somewhat cryptic stories. And in Mark 4 verse 12, he shows that Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah to explain the purpose for which he was speaking in these parables. And here's what Jesus says, quoting Isaiah. He says, I'm doing this so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand. So, as we look at the rest of what Jesus is saying around that, we see that Jesus is speaking in such a way that causes division between two kinds of people. Those who have spiritual sight and are progressively seeing more of Jesus, and those who are spiritually blind and have hard hearts, and therefore they'll get progressively harder toward Jesus. They don't understand, they don't trust, and they won't unless they receive this sight. And so the question through the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel is, not just do, do people see Jesus, but it actually becomes, do the disciples see Jesus clearly? Um, Mark throws these comments in from time to time that their hearts were hardened because they didn't, they didn't understand. And then it comes to this culmination right in chapter 8. Look at verse 18. Look what he says to the disciples. They're not understanding him. He says, having eyes, do you not see? All around here he's saying, Is, are your hearts hardened? Do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Echoing Isaiah 6 again. The, the question is, are the disciples actually on the inside? Do they get Jesus? And he's asking this question, you have eyes, but do you see? Or is your heart hardened? So do you see what's going on here? The disciples are following Jesus, but they're very slow to understand. They're slow to believe. And so Jesus asked the question, do you guys have spiritual sight or not? So this is how the first half of the gospel ends, by raising this question, do you see? And now right after that question, Jesus gives a blind man sight, but he does it in stages. And then what happens next? Well, we'll see this in more detail, but Jesus speaks plainly to his disciples about himself. We find that they do see, but not clearly. Their sight of Jesus, they're looking at him, and he's like a tree walking around, right? They don't have a clear vision of who he really is. They're at the first stage of spiritual sight, and they need the second. So the disciples are at the first stage of healing. They see Jesus, but it's blurry, and now in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to speak plainly to them so they see him clearly. So, let's pause here. Where are you? 
Are you like the blind man who needed to be brought to Jesus? Do you have a very vague idea of who Jesus is, and you're just not sure about who he really is, what it would mean to follow him, and so you need him to give you sight? Or are you like this blind man after the first touch? You see Jesus, you have an idea of him, you're trying to follow him in a sense, but it's really still, he just confuses you all the time, and you just sense you don't quite get it. Or are you like the blind man after the second touch? You do see Jesus. He's opened your eyes. You don't see him perfectly. Uh, he still may confuse you at times, <laughs> but there, there's a progression happening. You see him and you follow him. Wherever you are, the rest of this text is here to help you because this text is here to help us answer the key questions to get clear on Jesus. Who is he? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? And Jesus speaks plainly here, which is what we need. So let's listen to how he answers each question. First, the identity question, who is he? He asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? So after all of this that they've observed, what's the conclusion people are coming to about me? Verse 28, they give several answers. They say, John the Baptist. Others say, you're Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. So a lot of different answers. Same today, isn't it? There's a lot of different Jesuses on the market today. A lot of people have their own agendas, and they claim that Jesus is right in line with them. It's not hard to take a few things that Jesus said out of context, neglect other things he said, and then make him look like he supports whatever is interesting to you or whatever your cause is. So there's an ancient Jesus who's a, just a nice historical figure to study. There's a Christian bookstore Jesus who smiles and holds, holds lambs in his arms. There's the fire and brimstone Jesus who just gets mad at people for their sin, tells them to get in line. There's the progressive Jesus who always supports our new cultural ideas about gender and sexuality and so forth. And then there's the happy puppy Jesus who's just happy when we give him attention, and he's waiting around for that. There's a lot of different Jesuses, but his disciples, or Jesus asked his disciples the most important question in verse 29, who do you say that I am? The first half of the Gospel of Mark culminates here, culminates with this question. Jesus has healed the deaf and the blind. He's calmed storms. He's cast out demons who oppressed people. He's forgiven sins. He's fed thousands on more than one occasion. He taught with a kind of authority that no one ever heard before. And all along, the disciples watched him, they listened to him, and now it's time to get clear. Who do you think I am? What conclusion do you come to? You must settle it for yourself. You know, there's a lesson for us in seeing how Jesus is both in intentional and patient with his disciples over time. He's intentional and patient with us. I know some of you here are still exploring Jesus. You're seeing him heal here. You're, you're seeing him serve. You're learning about his forgiveness he offers. You're listening to him teach. And you need to know that Jesus gives you space to investigate him. And so we give you space to investigate him. Our, our church is, has open space 
for you to investigate who Jesus is, ask your questions about who Jesus is without pressure. Jesus was doing that for people all the time. And for those who are Christians here, let's learn from Jesus' example of how to make disciples, right? At the heart of our purpose as a church is both to be disciples of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. So how do we make disciples of Jesus? Well, Jesus shows us two ways we do this, which is with intentionality and patience. So often, don't we tend to neglect one of those? You may lean in toward one or the other. Some of us are intentional to tell people about Jesus. Some of you are very intentional to tell people about Jesus and what he has done for us, but you can tend to be impatient and rush people and be frustrated when people don't see it as you see it. Others of us are endlessly patient with people. We befriend people, we spend years with them, but we never actually get around to talking about Jesus and to asking what people think about Jesus. Even the simple question Jesus asks here, who do, who do people say that I am? Who do you think he is? So Jesus shows us that evangelism is both intentional and patient. So my favorite way to do this is to give someone a Bible if they don't have it and encourage them to read the Gospel of Mark. Go along the journey that Mark's taking us on. Go along the journey that Jesus took his disciples on and then offer to meet to talk about it or meet to talk about a few chapters at a time and just walk through. Who, who is Jesus? Let's ask questions here. Let's talk about it. Let's make observations. Let's consider these three questions we're looking at here. Who is he? What did he come to do? And what's the third question? Discipleship. That's right. What's it mean to follow him? Wow. So those are three questions. And Mark's answering those three questions on every page of this gospel. So you can, every chapter, you can ask those three questions and come to some conclusions and progressively explore who Jesus is. And he's patient with us. For some people, it may continue many years. And you share resources, you give helpful books, you ask what they think about Jesus, intentionality and patience. Not one or the other, but both. And then praying all along that the Lord would give sight, because only he can. But Jesus also shows us here that there is a time for decisiveness. We, we all have to come to this point where we settle it for ourselves, no longer endlessly asking questions, but settle it for ourselves. Who do we say Jesus is? So Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says in verse 29, you are the Christ. The Greek word Christ is from the Hebrew word Messiah. In light of the way that title is used and developed in the Old Testament, it came to be referred to the one true king who would rule Israel and the nations, the king of kings who came into the world. And Peter is saying, you are the long-awaited king. That's our conclusion. Peter and the disciples aren't blind, are they? They see. They've settled it for themselves. Jesus is the Christ. Maybe you wonder if you can get to this place of decisiveness about Jesus' identity. So if you are considering Jesus, I encourage you to investigate him. Continue to investigate him. Look at what he did. Listen to what he said. Maybe you have questions about if it's rational to trust him. Or maybe you wonder, can we even trust the gospel accounts, like the pages we're looking at that Mark's writing? How do we know this is even legit? Or maybe you wonder how the Bible speaks to objections that you have or that you know people reasonably raise today. 
Whatever your questions are, I encourage you to keep investigating. Um, talk to a Christian friend about these things. We have a number of books in our resource corner um, for exploring Christianity. A bunch of them are out at the center table that you can just grab even after our service today to consider who Jesus is and investigate Him. Or maybe you have investigated Jesus, and you may be at a place where you are convinced that He is the Christ, He is the King. And yet, there's something holding you back from committing to Him, from just settling it for yourself that you will follow Him. You're hesitant. And so, if that's you, I would encourage you to ask yourself this question today. Most important question you can ask. What is keeping you back from Jesus? I don't just say that rhetorically. Uh, Maybe there is something, and you've got to ask yourself that question to expose it. What is it for you? Um, Identify that, and then go to work with that and think about it. Ask God to help you overcome that objection. Talk to a Christian friend about what to do with that hesitancy and that obstacle. Ask a leader in our church. We'd love to talk to you and help you work it through. So that's the identity question. Who is Jesus? Answer, he's the Christ, the world's true king. Second is the mission question. What did he come to do? Peter sees Jesus, right? He said, you're the Christ, but not clearly. He knows Jesus' identity in part, but he doesn't understand his mission. His vision of Jesus is blurry. In other words, Peter and the disciples have received the first touch of Jesus. They see, but Jesus is blurry to them. They need the complete healing. Look at verse 31. Now Jesus begins to speak plainly about his death and resurrection. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. It's the first time he has said this plainly to them, that he would die and rise. And now how does Peter respond to this? Verse 32, and Peter took him aside, it's nice that he didn't do it publicly, and began to rebuke him. What a moment. So Peter believes that Jesus is the king, but he did not expect Jesus to suffer and die. No one expected that. Jesus is bringing together two expectations from the Old Testament that nobody, as far as we can tell, brought together. One expectation is that the Messiah would come, the Christ would come and rule over Israel and the nations, all things. And the other expectation is that one would come who would suffer. For this is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. A servant would come and suffer and be rejected. He'd die and he'd rise again. No one thought these two expectations referred to the same person. Everybody missed it until Jesus came. And why was it necessary for these two to be held together? Well, he doesn't tell Peter here, but he will in chapter 10, verse 45. You can even just flip over there. It's just a page over. Jesus himself echoes the language of Isaiah 53, which talks about this servant who had come to suffer. And he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to be a servant, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is why he needed to die. 
He's giving his life as a ransom for many. He's giving himself as a sacrifice, a sin offering for people. So Jesus came to bring his kingdom and to renew all things. But here's the problem. When Jesus announces the kingdom, and then it's dawning, and he'll renew all things, the problem is that there's no one worthy to enter that kingdom. So if he establishes his kingdom, but doesn't die for people, no one's in the kingdom. Just judgment for everyone. But he comes not just as the king, but as the servant who dies for the subjects of his kingdom, who goes to the cross to give his life as a sacrifice for us so that all who trust him enter the kingdom through the cross, enter the kingdom through receiving his forgiveness. Peter didn't get it. Nobody got it. So Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes Peter right back. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus is saying there's really two different mindsets. There's a mindset described as set on the things of God, and there's a mindset that's set on the things of man. The mindset set on the things of God understands that suffering is needed, a sacrifice is needed. It expects the Christ to come and die for us, but the things of man, a mindset set on things of man, rejects suffering, rejects the need for sacrifice, expects Christ to come, but not to suffer and show mercy. So the mindset that rejects the need for the cross is still here. Uh, it's shown in a number of different ways, and just even the default posture of our heart to not think we need a suffering Savior, but it's also the mindset of what we could just put under the label theological liberalism, which claims to follow Jesus, and yet rejects the significance of the cross. So, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, he drew attention to this in the last century. He noted how theological liberalism wanted to keep Jesus, but they rejected the biblical teaching on the sinfulness of humanity, the wrath of God over sinners, and the need for the cross of Christ, therefore, uh, to cover that judgment. Here's how Niebuhr put it. It's been several years since I've referred to this, so I'll bring it out again. He said, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's theological liberalism. You have a God without wrath bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So if we remove the doctrine of human sin, God's wrath, the cross of Christ, what are we left with? Well, we're not left with the real Jesus. And that's the only Jesus that matters. But the real Jesus rescues real sinners like you and me who have a real sin from maybe a terrible sin from this morning, last night, this past week, from something you've done in the past, and we're brought into his kingdom. And it's good news because this shows his mercy and his love and his grace for us. So that's the answer to the mission question. What did Jesus come to do? He came to bring his kingdom through his cross. And now this leads to the last question, the discipleship question. What does it mean to follow him? So if this is who he is, if he's the one who came to rule with absolute authority, and he's the one who overflows with grace to suffer for us through the cross, what then is it like to follow this man? What is it like to follow Jesus? And here's the answer. 
It means following him to the cross. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's the way that he goes, and from this moment on in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the central theme is the way to the cross. It's the way that he's headed toward Jerusalem, and people are following in his wake behind him, and he's teaching them that this isn't just the direction he's taking to the cross. This is a new way of living. So he says this is what being a Christian's like. It's taking up a cross and following him. So look at verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, so if you want to follow Jesus, here's what Jesus says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you know how this would have landed on those crowds who heard it? Nobody in that crowd had a cross around their neck shining. No one would have had it tattooed anywhere. It was not a religious symbol. It wasn't a positive symbol at all. It was the symbol, like the symbol in that culture of suffering and shame. All the Roman intellectuals agreed crucifixion was the worst form of punishment. It was for insurrectionists and, and uh, slaves. person would sometimes have to carry their own crossbeam on the way to the place of crucifixion. Then they're hoisted up naked. They die and they're thrown in a common grave after the birds might pick at their corpse a bit. Public shame, intense suffering. And Jesus says to the crowd, do you want to know what it's like to follow me? Does anyone want to follow me? And he says, take up your cross follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's shocking, but it's a metaphor of what it means to follow him. So, what does it mean for us? Well, there's three reasons why, from what Jesus is saying here, there's three reasons why this is a hard saying, but there's one reason why it's worth it. So, here's three reasons why discipleship is hard, following Jesus is hard, and this is for all Christians. This isn't like you can be a Christian, and then this part's optional for you. This is Christianity 101. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you're not on this path that he's describing, you're not on the path, okay? So here's three reasons why it's really hard, one reason why it's worth it. First, it involves self-denial, or we could say self-renunciation. Jesus said, deny yourself and walk to the place of death. So this isn't just about changing a few behaviors, this is about renouncing yourself as your own master. It's changing who directs your life. This is what the Apostle Paul would later say, crucifying yourself and putting to death what is earthly and sinful and selfish in you. It, it's saying to yourself, you are not in charge anymore. Jesus is. And this is radically, not, not just against every impulse we have, it's radically countercultural in every culture, and certainly in ours, our culture deeply values being your own master. I mean, it is celebrated. The greatest good in our culture, we call this expressive individualism. It's the ability to find your deepest desires, affirm them as good, and then live them out and make space for everyone to do the same. Find out what makes you you, find out what makes you happy, and then do it. Jesus is calling us to a very different way of life. Our culture says, find yourself to find your true life. Jesus is saying, deny yourself to find true life. 
Our culture says, find yourself and express it. And Jesus says, renounce yourself, follow me. So here's another way to put it. Jesus is leading us to dethrone our personal idols and submit to him. Our idol is that which we serve and honor more than him. So denying yourself means dethroning your idols and following Jesus. So it means putting whatever this drive in you is for power or influence or comfort and rest and relaxation or your need for security and wealth or your addiction to reputation and being liked. He's saying all of this, whatever drives you and makes you tick, whatever's motivating you in life, even causing you to pursue good things, renounce yourself and follow me. So very practically, think about is there something in your life that you feel deeply inclined to do and yet you know Jesus, it's not the way of Jesus. He calls you not to do that. Jesus is saying for you very specifically, renounce yourself. So if you are considering pursuing a path that you know is wrong, that you know is out of step with what Jesus has revealed, Jesus is saying you have a choice to make right now. You either pursue that path or you follow me. You can't, you can't be a Christian and be your own master. I mean, very often in, in my own life, even in the smallest things, it's really helpful to just boil it down. My decision right now is simple. I'm either going to give in to my deep desire right now, or I'm going to follow Jesus. Uh, big decisions in life are like that as well, and there's a lot of reasons why we try to hold these two things together, right? Well, I can follow Jesus and doesn't Jesus want me to be happy? So Jesus affirms my great desire, right? We, hold, we try to hold it together, but we can't. He says, renounce yourself. So that's one reason why it's hard. Another reason why following Jesus is hard is not only because we renounce ourselves, but it involves costly love. Jesus goes to the cross for the sake of love. He gives his life for us and for our salvation. And so when he, when he calls us to the way of the cross, he's not just calling us to, you know, just merely deny ourselves over and over for no purpose, but for the sake of love. He talks about um, being ashamed of his, himself and the gospel here. So the assumption is that Christians are living for the sake of Jesus and sharing the gospel with people, which is the most loving thing you can do for someone. So we, we live for the sake of love. We kill our selfishness so that we can serve others. There's always a cost to love. Giving up our preferences to serve someone else happens in little ways all the time uh, and in big ways. And then third, following Jesus is hard because it may involve social shame. The cross was the greatest symbol of public shame in that culture, and Jesus uses that to, as a metaphor for following him. So Jesus is headed toward this public humiliation, and he's saying, grab your own crosses and get ready follow behind me, identify with me. It's what he notes in verse 38. He says there's going to be temptations to be ashamed of him. So if you follow Jesus, people will reject you. I mean, we're living in the midst of seismic shifts in our culture right now. So being a Christian has gone from gaining social affirmation to now increasingly receiving social scorn. And if things keep going this way, uh, many of you may lose your jobs for faithfulness to Jesus receiving shame and scorn for identifying with Jesus and his ethics. It's why it's hard to follow Jesus. It, 
It involves self-denial and renunciation. It's costly love and social shame. But there's a reason why it's all worth it. There's a lot of reasons. It's because the way of the cross is the path to true life. It's the path to true honor and glory. Remember, Jesus said he'd die but then rise. And on the other side of the cross, there's then resurrection and glory and eternal life. Notice how Jesus now reasons with us in light of the same pattern in verses 35 and 36. Look at this with me. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, right, self-denial, costly love, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Jesus is saying, join me in this hard path, and as you do this, you will actually find true life. It will lead to new, true life, eternal life, but that even begins now because we get Jesus, and we trust him and treasure him now. So for us today, we need to embrace that, that, that this is hard and it's good. It's both. So questions for you. Are you embracing that it is hard? Following Jesus is hard. If you are not expecting it to be hard, then you will be unprepared for the kinds of decisions you need to make to honor him. You will be totally unprepared to fight temptation with the kind of force that Jesus is calling you to. Um, You'll be disillusioned when shame or suffering comes to you for following Jesus. But Jesus didn't promise it to be easier. He promised it would get harder in some ways. But the other question is, are you embracing that following Jesus is good and it's best and it's for your good? It's truly the good life. It's the life that frees us from self-love so that we can get away from being our own master, which feels freeing but is its own form of slavery. Just be freed from self-love so we can love others and bless others and serve others. The life of costly love is hard, but it's good. The life of self-denial is hard, but it's best and it's a blessing to others. It's the way of the cross. And on the other side of the cross is glory. So do you see how Jesus is preparing us even for our hard cultural social context that we're living in and entering into right now. The social cost for being a Christian has always been hard, and it's increasing in our own culture. Lots of professing Christians are trying, I mean, this is, this is the project that's happening today in, among many people. They're trying to figure out how we can get around this, how we can follow Jesus but not receive the social cost. They're trying to remove the social cost but following Jesus by changing what he actually calls us to do. So, one example, people change the Bible's sexual ethic in order to fit with our culture today. It's a lot easier, isn't it, if we can just affirm our culture's shifting views on marriage and divorce and gender and sexuality. I mean, that would make it a lot easier. But Jesus calls us to follow him. And so, here's the deal. If we decide what it means to follow Jesus. If we decide what parts of his teaching we will keep, then here's the question, who's following who? Are we following Jesus or are we actually asking him to follow us? And if we're following him, then we don't get to pick or choose, not even one thing. You renounce yourself. Even what might feel like some of your deepest desires, you renounce yourself and you follow him. And he says, That's actually where you'll find life. It's the place of costly love, but it's the place of 
true life. So Mark is showing us that Jesus is bringing us to a point of clarity. He's asking each one of us to move beyond blindness, beyond blurriness, and into clear sight. So he's asking us, who do you say that I am? This is a question for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you say that he came to do? And what do you say it means to follow him? We've all got to answer for ourselves. And he invites us to answer this way. You're the true king. You came to bring your kingdom through the cross. And following you is the path of life, but it involves self-renunciation, costly love, and maybe social shame. But it's worth it. It's a hard path, but it's a good path. So, let's uh, pray together and then sing. Father, we thank you for giving us the truth. And we know that this is hard for us because of the way that our selfishness is so controlling. And so we pray that you would free us from self-love and open us more and more uh, to your goodness, to receiving your grace through Jesus, and then to follow Jesus on this way. We pray that whatever decisions we have to make this week, the thousands of small ones and the several big ones, we pray for each one of us that you would help us to follow Jesus in those moments by the power of your Spirit and convince us in those moments that it is the path of life and it is good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.